0: We'll turn with me, if you would, to the book of Joel and chapter 2. We are in Joel chapter 2 in our series through this minor prophet. We'll be looking at verse 18 down through verse 32, down through the end of the second chapter of Joel. And just as a reminder of where we've been, perhaps if you haven't been with us, or it's been a little while, a few weeks since we began this series, Joel is a prophet of God. He is someone who is called, set apart as God's mouthpiece to bring God's message to his people. Probably, it looks like, to the southern kingdom of Judah. And we don't know exactly when, we don't know exactly the circumstances surrounding the exact time when he's bringing this message, but we know certain things, and one of those things is that a great plague of locusts has come. And they have come in, and they have swept through this land, and they have taken away everything, all the crops, even the bark off the trees has been eaten off, and there's a drought as well, and so basically what the people of Judah are looking at are are two years of harvest that are gone. And the question is, how will they survive? How will all these things uh, come to their good? How will they possibly make it in this life as they're dependent on these crops? And Joel is coming to them, and he's proclaiming God's message, not only the fact that these things have happened, but he's giving a divinely inspired interpretation of these events. And so Joel, chapters 2, and starting in verse 18 is where we pick up this week. Then the Lord became jealous for his land. And had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you, and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for your abundant rain, and the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame." And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Let's go to our God and ask for his aid one more time this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the prophecy of Joel, for these words that your spirit inspired all these thousands of years ago. We pray that you'll help us to see more for ourselves, not only how this applied to them, but how it applies to us as well. We thank you, Lord, for Your blessings and your also your promise of future judgment for all the things that you are going to do on this earth and that you have been doing for all these thousands of years. We pray, Lord, that we'll see more of Christ and our security in him this morning. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, if you remember from last time, what we saw is that Joel is calling the people to repentance through the word of the Lord. That Joel has already told these people that this plague has come as a judgment. It's a plague that even the elders of the people had not seen the likes of. It was such a great plague. It was so many locusts. It was such devastation that people were left shocked. And it wasn't, of course, the first time they had to deal with locusts. It was a fact of life in those days. This was part of what it meant to be a farming nation in the Mediterranean, that you would have locusts come in every once in a while and take away parts of your crops or even the entire crops. But to have a swarm like this was something new. Joel was reminding the people that this was in part a response to their sin that God was bringing upon them. That they had, in a way, turned away from God, that they had really just gone through the motions, that they hadn't really trusted in their covenant Lord and Yahweh, the God of all Israel, the God of all the earth. And so as a result, they were being chastised here. That judgment had come upon them in this way, and they needed to repent and to be delivered. And so last Sunday morning, we looked at the fact that Joel called his people to be delivered. He called them to repent of their sins, to come together in God's temple, (coughs) to be gathered together by the priests in order to come to God in sackcloth and to rend their hearts and not just their garments. And so that's apparently what they did. We aren't told exactly that this is what's happened chronologically yet as we come to the response that God gives, or if it's just that God knows that they will repent and this is what his response will be. But what we see beginning this morning is really his response to their repentance, his response to their returning to him as he has called them to do. And we'll see this morning that God's work at the end in judgment and in blessing either terrifies or comforts. That's the message that Joel brings to his people. It's the message he brings to us even this morning. And so we'll come to three points, three headings this morning, each in turn. And the first one is deliverance in verses 18 through 27. Deliverance in verses 18 through 27. And we see that what God says Through Joel in verse 18, is then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. And so we've seen the evidence that God is gracious and merciful so far in Joel. We've seen even from the beginning that he's the one calling for the alarm, for the trumpet to be blasted at Jerusalem's walls as the locust army is coming he's the one who's calling out hey this is even pointing ahead to something even worse it's pointing ahead to the day of the Lord the last day the day of judgment he's been gracious in that way and the people of Judah the people of Jerusalem are called to come into his presence to come into his temple and to repent and to actually return to him because he is himself gracious and merciful and here we see evidence of that in what he promises to do for his people in the future Joel doesn't make any bones about it, That God is the one who has sent these locusts. And God is the one who has sent this calamity, as the people would have looked at it, on their own heads. That because of their sin against him, because of their turning their backs on him, he has responded in this way, but he will also respond to their repentance. He will also respond to them as they return to him. You might have noticed in verse 20, there's an idea of the northerner being driven away, or being removed far from you. And that might not make a lot of sense to us as modern-day Americans. Who on earth is the northerner? What exactly does this mean? What does it mean that he'll be removed far away from you? Well, this is a reference essentially to the army of locusts that God has brought upon his people. And it's meant to bring certain things to minds of the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. For years and years, for generations, the enemies of the people of God, the ones, the great powers of the day, have generally come from the north. That The invasions have generally come from the north. That's where Assyria came in and took away the northern kingdom of Israel. It's where Babylon would come in and take away the southern kingdom of Israel. They'd come from the north, and there was always this idea that the northerner is the judgment of God upon his people. The northerner is the one who's going to come and execute vengeance upon those who have abandoned God, who do not believe in Yahweh. And so what Joel is doing here is he is taking this well-known idea of the northerner, of this northern army, and he's applying it to the locusts just one more evidence that God himself is the one who brought the locust upon Israel. What he's saying is, I'm going to take this northerner and I'm going to scatter him. I'm going to take him far away from you. And there's this picture in verse 20 of rotting piles of locust bodies on the beach. It's not a very pretty picture, is it? Boys and girls, I don't know if you've ever been to the beach. Perhaps in California or perhaps somewhere on the east coast or in Florida. And oftentimes it's a wonderful place. It's full of sand, it's full of seagulls, it's full of water, of course, you get the sea breeze rolling in, you can hear the crashing of the waves. But now imagine you're there on the beach, you're taking in all this beauty, and all of a sudden all these rotting uh, corpses of locusts start washing up. And there's pile after pile after pile of these insects that have drowned and are dead and are stinking and are just covering all the beaches. That's disgusting, isn't it? It's not something you would want to see. I don't remember which church father it was, but I was reading that one of the church fathers, one of the ancient Christians from the early days saw a locust plague and saw this very thing happen. And there were piles and piles of locusts dead on the beaches and he said that it was dangerous for man or a beast to be on the beach because of all the decay and all the disgusting things that came along with these dead bodies. And it's quite a picture, isn't it? It's not a picture that's necessarily pleasant to our eyes, but consider with me what it would look like if these are the locusts that have come in and have destroyed your land. These are the signs of God's judgment upon the sin that his people have committed, and there they are dead. That God has destroyed them. That God has taken them far away. That God has killed them. That the judgment that had come upon his people has now been transferred to the locusts, and now they are dead. Now they are piling up on the beaches. There's destruction of God's enemies. It's a preview, really, of the destruction of the last day. It's similar to what God did with Assyria and with Babylon. He used them as his tools, as his instruments to come in and to do the things that needed to be done. But they also went too far. And they themselves were wicked and unbelieving. And, of course, they themselves had judgment fall upon them. The same thing is happening here with the locusts. As with many things in Joel, this is only a preview of the last day. It's only a preview of what happens to those who are essentially God's enemies when he comes in judgment. That locusts rotting on the beach are a faint preview of what the last judgment will be, of what eternity in hell will be. Hell is worse than rotting on a beach, and that's the fate that awaits God's enemies. But in the destruction of the enemies of God, there's also prosperity for God's people. And you may have noticed as we are reading through this first part of our text this morning that there are all these promises of abundance that are coming. And how different that is from the decay and death and destruction, the barrenness that was surrounding Judah at this time. Here you have all these trees that have become white because the locusts have even eaten the bark off the very trees themselves. That there is nothing left for the people of God. There is nothing left for them to eat. Soon there won't be much left for them to drink, especially as you consider the drought. There's no crop coming next year as they see it. Even the religious worship of God has been interrupted because they cannot give their grain and their wine offerings each and every day as they've been commanded. And these people are the ones who are hearing of this gracious provision of God. That God is going to give these wonderful things and prosperity for his people. We can ask at this point, does this lead to the prosperity gospel? It's one of those things There are oftentimes in church history where we look and we see, well, there's something here that's happened before. There's something here that has yeah, you know, a precedent in the ancient church perhaps I wonder if perhaps the prosperity gospel is one of those unusual things that seems to be distinctly American or at least how it began this promise that if you believe enough that if you do enough things if you plant your seed money or whatever it may be that God will give you wonderful uh, physical provisions that God will give you wealth and success beyond your wildest dreams is that what this is leading to is that what we can take away from this and the answer is certainly not Joel is telling the people that God will provide for them, that he will provide for their needs, that he will give them abundantly in the way that's the opposite of how he has taken away from them. That he's using the language of the covenant that he had given his people in the first five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And one of the judgments of that covenant was that he would bring in locusts, that he would bring in locust swarms, and he would eat away the people's food from off his land. But some of the blessings were that he would give them abundant provision. He would give them wine and oil and grain beyond even what they could have dreamed of, even what they could have imagined. That there will be blessings and that religious services will be restored. All these wonderful things that have been taken away will be given to you and you'll have more left over. Notice again with me in verse 19 some of those words that he says, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. What God is saying there is he's going to restore even the worship at his temple that has been taken away for a time. That this symbol, this sign of this interruption in God's relationship with his people is going to be done away with. As people will not be our approach among the nations, but that the nations will be able to see, yes, there is a God, there is the God in the midst of Judah, in the midst of Jerusalem. And he is the one who is bringing blessings and provision for his people. In verses 21 and 22, we see that the land and the beasts are given what they need. In verse 23, we see this idea of rain that comes the early rain and the latter rain abundant rain as he says really this first rain is the rain that softens the ground and enables them to plant their harvest plant their crop and the latter rain is the rain that really helps the crop come into maturity so that they can harvest it on time god is promising that even in this degree he will bring blessings upon his people that he will bring them the rain that he has withheld from them and the drought that has come will go away We can ask, why are these things the case? Why is he going to do these things? Well, it's because this is his land. And these are his people. He said that even at the very beginning of our text this morning, in verse 18, that these are the people that I have basically chosen, that this is my own very land that I've done these things to, and I will bring blessings upon them because they are mine. Because my people are repenting, they are returning to me, they are trusting in me, they are exercising faith in me. Then all these blessings will come upon, my people, and this will lead to great rejoicing. as the people come out of this terrible time when everything seemed to have been gone to have gone wrong. When there's no food, there's no hope, humanly speaking, where there's nothing they can do to really change this situation, God is promising that they will have full bellies, that they will have full hearts, that they will be able to rejoice once again, even in His presence. This is a description of what the Christian life is. And we know there are many things that we want that we don't have. We know that sometimes it seems that even our needs are not being met. But we also know that our God is great, that our God is gracious and kind and merciful to us. He provides for us physically and spiritually for what we need. That he will one day even take us to be with him if the Lord does not return first. That all these blessings that we receive now, all these blessings that Israel received, that Judah received in the time of Joel, were only previews of the coming glories. Only previews of the coming blessings that God would bring to his people. Even as the judgment and the locusts were only previews of the last day. God is promising that there will be deliverance here. That there will be rejoicing. That short-term, he will restore his people's fortunes. And as we see, as we get into our second heading this morning, long-term, all our physical and spiritual needs will be met. He will provide for us greatly. And so as we consider these things, we recognize that we are not ancient people living in Jerusalem. That we are not going to see with our eyes the literal wine and oil and grain that are being brought to us. That We are not coming to a temple and returning to God and therefore knowing that he is going to speak to us through the priests, we can also see this is the same God that we worship. That there is one people of God, and even though things have changed and things look different now, that he still provides for all those who repent. He still provides for all those who trust in him, for all those who trust in Christ. And so what he's calling us to do is to rejoice in his provision for us to rejoice in what he has given to us and what he has promised to give to us. And that leads to our second heading, Even Greater Blessings, in verses 28 and 29. This is one of the most famous passages in the book of Joel, perhaps the most famous, as we read, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit." Now this is one of those verses that you read the New Testament, you read through the book of Acts, and you see quite clearly this is a prophecy that is coming to terms on the day of Pentecost, we'll get to that in just a moment. But it's very familiar to us, and it's quite striking language, isn't it? That afterwards, in the last days, essentially in those days, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And no matter your sex or your age or your status in society, that these things will be true of you. And so we can ask, what exactly is it that Joel is saying? What is God prophesying through his prophet to say? Well, in one sense, he's taking these blessings that he's promised to his people in verses 18 through 27, and he's expanding on them. He's building on them. He's saying, that was only the beginning. That was only the foundation that I'm now going to build upon later. That you're not going to be no longer just making it, but these blessings, these wonderful blessings are going to be poured out upon you. You're going to have these wonderful things from my own hand. You're going to have something that's even greater than what you have now. And it's not to say that believers in the old covenant had nothing. They had wonderful blessings. They had wonderful provision of God. They even did have the Holy Spirit. But what God is proclaiming here is that believers in the new covenant are going to have something even better. It's something we find throughout the prophets. We think of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel perhaps as the most clear examples of these things. Perhaps just because we know them best. But this promise that as great as the things God has given to his people are now, they will be greater in the future. They'll be greater as God brings more clarity as Christ himself comes. And so what Judah is hearing now is that we have experienced judgment and blessing is on the way. And what we should hear as those who are trusting in Christ after the cross is that judgment has come. It has fallen upon Jesus Christ himself and we are experiencing blessings. This is the place that Peter takes us in the Pentecost sermon as we'll get to it in just a few moments. But in verse 28, notice with me this idea of the Holy Holy Spirit being poured out. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. It seems that Joel is trying to make an analogy here to compare these things and to give the people an idea of what this will look like. That just as he is going to send the the early rain and the latter rain upon his people, just as he's going to give them all the things that they need for their harvest, so in the same way he's going to pour out his spirits upon all people. The spirit's going to be poured out like rain. It's really fulfillment of what Moses wanted as God is beginning to bring prophets among the people in Numbers chapter 11. And Moses says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirits on them. It's this idea of wonderful blessing. That it's wonderful to have certain people that have the spirit in this way. But how much greater to have everyone in the community have the spirit in this way? It's that sense that's come to us. We know that oftentimes in the Bible there was no word from God. There was no spirit coming to his people and giving them uh, prophecies and dreams and messages and all these sorts of things. This is often a time of wondering and doubting, perhaps even a time of judgment upon his people. We think of 1 Samuel 3. And we see that now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. We can ask, what was the idea of those days? What were those days? Well, those days were the end of the days of the judges. Days when Israel was very disobedient to God, when there was much judgment, and God was often being quiet about his people. Not bringing them a word of prophecy. And there was this idea that now that Samuel's here and the word begins to come, that blessing is going to follow after it. Even though certainly there's still sin, there's still um, judgment that needs to come, there's still chasing that needs to happen to God's people. So this idea of the Holy Spirit coming on all flesh in the Old Testament is really this idea of wonderful blessing. Of everyone receiving everything that they could possibly need. There are a lot of things that are going on here in our text and we can wonder what does it mean that on all flesh the Holy Spirit will come? Is this some sort of way of saying that it's universalism that every single person in the world will be saved? Some people have taken it that way. The problem with that is the rest of the things that Joel says. The judgment is going to come on the nations. The last day is coming. It's going to be a day that those who are not trusting in Christ will not like. They will not enjoy. It will be a day of terror for them, as Joel is going to say, even in just a few verses here. So what does it mean, all flesh? Well, he's talking about all flesh, all those who are in the community who are trusting in him. He's talking about all those who have truly rent their hearts and not their garments. All those who are trusting in Yahweh, who are trusting in the Lord, and the Lord alone. That God's people need the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what we have been given. All flesh, perhaps, is even a shadowy preview of the mission to the Gentiles. And again, I don't know the genetic makeup of everyone here. I'm sure there are people with Jewish ancestry as well as probably a majority of Gentiles, myself included, We know that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, often the people of God were narrowed down to just this one people group. And surely God would reveal himself to other people in other nations here and there. For the most part, he was dealing with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. What does Paul say in Romans 10? He quotes Joel chapter 2, and he says these words, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, Joel chapter 2, from the very end, from verse 32. And it seems he has this entire thing in his mind as he's having this idea. He's beginning to realize that as much as he's heard this uh, book, as much as he's heard Joel throughout his life as he's grown up, perhaps even had it memorized, he's beginning to see exactly what it is that God was saying through his prophet, through his Holy Spirit all these thousands of years ago. That the message will come to Gentiles, that it will be as if all flesh are having these wonderful things happen to them. That all who are believing, whether Jew or Greek, whether Jew or Gentile, will receive the promised blessing of the Holy Spirit. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we have now. This is the present blessing that Peter is saying. You remember, boys and girls, that day, that first Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples in the upper room as they're hidden away for fear of the Jews, and the tongues of fire come down and begin to speak in tongues that they had not learned and begin to proclaim the gospel in all these different languages that they had not learned And the people are outside and they're wondering at this and they're looking at these Galileans and these people who should not know these languages and they're saying, well, they must be drunk. Do you remember what Peter said when he stood up and began that great sermon in Acts chapter 2? He stands up and he says, we're not drunk, it's still the morning, as if drunkenness could explain talking in languages you don't speak anyway. And he begins to quote from Joel chapter 2. He quotes the words of this prophecy in saying, even now this has begun to be fulfilled here. It's not as if there's not something that remains for the end. But it's begun to be fulfilled, initially fulfilled here within Jerusalem itself. At the very same place where the prophecy was given 2,000 years ago, we see this prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled. That the Holy Spirit has been poured out And that all those who call on the name of the Lord were saved, even as they were that day in Jerusalem, even on that first Pentecost, as 2,000 souls were added to the early church. What Joel is saying is these wonderful blessings, these things that the old covenant people were waiting for, that the Old Testament was looking forward to and never quite reaching, were here now. They had begun to be given to God's people that the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And so if you're here this morning and you've called on the name of the Lord, know that this is true of you. That the Holy Spirit has been poured out on you at the beginning of this fulfillment of this prophecy. And certainly we're still waiting for it in its fullness. We're still waiting for the new heavens the new earth where all these things are true in their full sense in their true sense and we dwell with God and we have communion with him that's uninterrupted, that doesn't have anything in the way. But even now, brothers and sisters... All of us who are trusting in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ have what they were longing for, have what they were hoping for, what they were looking to. And so don't forget what you already have. Don't forget what God has already given to you. Even as you wait for that last day, even as you wait for the fullness of his promises to come to you, don't forget what his promise has brought to you. Don't forget that you have the very Holy Spirit himself, that he has been poured about upon you. That even as you hear the word proclaimed, even as you witness other baptisms and remember your own, even this morning as we come to the Lord's table, there's the Holy Spirit at work in these things. The Holy Spirit at work within us, the Holy Spirit giving us strength for our Christian life, giving us assurance and comfort and hope, strengthening our faith, doing all these things that God has promised to know that we have all that we need at this time from God. That we have the Holy Spirit and there are greater blessings than the blessings that God has promised even the rain and the crops to come to Judah. But this brings us to our final heading there. has been deliverance for God's people, and there's a promise of greater blessings to come, which we even now have begun to experience in our own lives. But there's also this idea of future judgment in verses 30 through 32. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is this idea of wonders in verse 30. And I don't know about you, but perhaps when I hear the idea of wonders, I think of great things. Great in the sense of things that I want to see. The wonders of creation, and you see perhaps the Grand Canyon or some other national park or some somewhere where you pull off the side as you're going through the Rocky Mountains and you look and you see the wonders that God has created. Or the wonders of friendship or the wonders of whatever it might be. All these wonderful things are coming to you. But when God uses wonders in the Old Testament, the word that's translated at least into English as wonders, it's often bad news. Wonders in the sense of judgment. Wonders in the sense of wrath to come. This is the other side of the coin, really that just as greater blessing is coming so is greater judgment that it's coming simultaneously with the blessings they're coming at the same time but to different people and different people will experience this coming day certainly in different ways and really that's the way that God has worked throughout history think of the exodus or think of even the cross itself that there was much judgment being meted out there was much cursing there was much destruction there was much death There was darkness even. And yet, in the midst of that, God's people were redeemed. In the midst of that, God's people experienced wonderful blessings. That's what Joel is prophesying here. That in those last times, in those days, even as the Holy Spirit has been poured out, even as God's people are not a reproach among the nations, even as we have received everything that we could possibly need, there are still wonders on the earth. And suddenly this becomes very cosmic, very big scale. And we see this idea of judgment, of the idea of war that's coming, an invasion, God invading the entire creation, coming to war against sin, against his enemies, against death, against all these things that are finally going to be put to rest on that last day. And we see again and again throughout the prophets especially, and even in the book of Revelation, this idea of not only the people trembling as they consider these things, but creation itself almost shaking trembling seeing its creator coming knowing what is on the way because god himself is wonderful and great and powerful that he is coming in judgment on the last day he is coming in greater judgment than anything that we have seen so far and it's in that judgment that his people will be redeemed It's through that judgment that his people will receive the blessings that God has given to them. It's similar to what happens even during the course of the worship service. What happens when we worship, when we gather together? Well, God calls us together and he reminds us that he is holy. He reminds us from his law all these things that he has commanded us to do that we have not done. He reminds us that if we do not trust in him, if we do not repent of our sins, we do not turn to Christ and rest in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation, that judgment is the only answer for us. But he also reminds us that those who are trusting in Christ Have wonderful blessings. Have the salvation that Christ has won and earned for us. That we have no need to fear in Jesus Christ. And So when this war comes, it will be unlike all the others. Just as the locust swarm was unlike all the others, we can ask, who can stand? It's a question that comes up again and again throughout Scripture in the Old and New Testaments. We think of perhaps Revelation chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's really the question, isn't it? When the great day of the Lord, when the great day of the Lamb's wrath comes, who can stand? Who can survive this? Who can make it? As it's set up for us, we can say that humanly speaking, none of us can. None of us will have any hope on that day if we are left trusting in ourselves, if we are left to ourselves. We can be thankful that Joel answers the question himself. In chapter 2, in verse 11, we even had these words as we see the Lord at the head of the army of the locusts. The Lord utters his voice before his army, and his camp is exceedingly great, and he who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who can endure it? That's the question. Well, Joel answers it now in verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. What Joel's reminding us here is that the day of the Lord, as great and as terrible and as terrifying as it may be, is not a hopeless day. It is not a day reft of all comforts. Of all salvation. It's not a day where it's just judgment on all and that's it. But verse 32 really comes to us and brings us the message of the gospel. The central theme of this part of Joel. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That as wonderful, as terrible, as awe-inspiring as this judgment is going to be. as, As God comes and invades the entire cosmos and works away all the things that have been gone wrong. As he executes judgment on his enemies and wrath on those who do not believe on him. That those who are trusting in Christ have hope. That those who are trusting in Christ have comfort. That those who have called on the name of the Lord can know that this judgment will not fall on them because it has already fallen on Jesus Christ. And so we'll pick up with these last few verses next time as we consider what God is promising to do to the nations around Judah. But what is God calling us to do here? If all these things are true, and they are because they're in God's word, what is the response that he is calling for from us? What are we to do as those who have gathered together in his presence to hear his word proclaimed to us? Well, most simply, most basically, he is calling us to call upon his name, to trust in Jesus Christ to repent of our sins, to return to him, to throw ourselves on his mercy and grace and to trust in the one who is coming in judgment and to know that the one who is coming in judgment is also gracious and merciful and will receive those who call upon him in faith, who call upon him and rest on him alone because God's work at the end either comforts or terrifies. That's the message that the prophets bring again and again. And if you're here this morning and you are outside of Christ, you are not trusting in him or you're trusting in someone or something else, and at the last day, there will be no hope. At the last day, there will only be judgment. But if you are here this morning and you are trusting in Jesus Christ, these are meant to be words of comfort for you. These are meant to be words of assurance. Meant to be words that you are looking forward to because they're words of deliverance. When the last day comes and you are calling on the name of the Lord and believing in Christ, God's work at the end will bring you tremendous comfort because suddenly you will be bringing, brought into his presence free from sin free from the cursed world free from all these things that as god himself says he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes but as judgment comes that is where the deliverance comes and this judgment is certainly coming and so god is calling us to call upon his name to trust in christ and to take comfort in these things if we are trusting in him because these are meant to be words of comfort to us and not terror let's pray Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this prophecy of Joel, for these words that you have brought to us. Even as we come to your table, we know, Lord, that those who are trusting in Christ are receiving blessings from your hand, that we have even the Holy Spirit poured out to us, who is working in us through the word and through the sacraments. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that those who are trusting in you know that this is not a hopeless day that is coming to us, but a day of deliverance and a day that we will see all the things that we have in part now become whole. We pray, Lord, that you'll keep us... In these things, keep these things in our minds. Bring us back again to gather together again with your people, again even this evening and next Sunday as we consider that this is even the foretaste of these final blessings. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.